our home in Houston, the, the, the last house that we lived in in Houston before our family relocated here, was surrounded on either side uh, by neighbors who, when we moved in to that home, were not uh, were both were non-Christian families. They were not professing Christians in any way. Their backgrounds and personalities were very different from one another, but neither of these families professed faith in Jesus. We lived in that neighborhood for about four years, and over the course of that four years, uh, Lindsay and I uh, had the opportunity to develop significant relationships with each of these families, and our kids played with their kids and had some good, good times as well. And so we developed relationships with each family, and uh, we and we often had opportunities to speak openly of Jesus and our Christian faith with each of these neighbors. Sometimes it would be one-on-one, just Lindsay or just me, with one or the other of these neighbors, uh, and or often we kind of find ourselves in kind of like tag team conversations where we're both involved in one conversation and kind of, uh, you know, helping each other as we went, trying to unfold the meaning of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and inviting them into a relationship with God by faith in Christ. And so uh, we, we loved these neighbors dearly. We, we, we were glad for the opportunities that God gave us to speak into their lives. By the time we moved away in August of 2015, we had seen the father of one of the families come to faith in Christ. He had repented of his sin and trusted in Jesus. Praise God. We were so grateful for that. But the other family remained resolute in their position, and they would not receive Jesus. Though they always welcomed the dialogue. They were always happy to have another conversation about Jesus and our respective views of him. But one of them responded in faith, and the other didn't. The question I want to ask is, what is the big difference between these two? What is the big difference between the one neighbor who eventually heard the gospel and responded in faith and repentance and the other neighbor who heard the gospel, the same gospel, and uh, and yet rejected it and did not receive it, at least not yet. We pray that they will. Were the differences mostly intellectual, like maybe the one who believed was simply smarter, was able to see the truth? of the message more plainly because he was smarter than the others? Was their difference mainly cultural? They came from different backgrounds. In fact, all three of our families, us and our neighbors, were all from different places and had very different uh, cultural backgrounds. And was it that one's background simply made him more open to the gospel than the other's background? Was the difference mainly relational? Like maybe our relationship with the one neighbor was better, and so he was more inclined to listen to us than the other neighbor? Was it mainly a moral difference? Like one neighbor was just kind of a better person and was closer to belief than the other neighbors were? Well, I, I think that though those things might have played a role. I mean, I think there are all kinds of ways that people are different from one another that might affect how somebody hears and responds to the gospel. Both of our Houston neighbors have the very same problem. Namely, their sin separated them from God and they needed to be reconciled to him through faith in Jesus. One of them did, and the other, at least as of now, has not. So what's the big difference? I want to suggest that the key difference between the neighbor who received Jesus and the one who didn't is the simple difference between 
belief, and unbelief. That sounds almost like a non-answer. But I think it's the, it's the, the lens through which Jesus looks at the world. It's the lens through which the apostle John looks at the world as they respond to Jesus and his person and his teaching. The truth is all human beings land on one side of this gulf or the other. At the end of the day, when it comes to a person's response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is only either belief or unbelief. It's one or the other. Trying to parse the mysteries therein and what leads to or causes belief versus unbelief is perhaps a bit beyond our ability. But recognizing this dichotomy, this gulf between those who believe and those who will not is important for us to get. It's an important way for us to see the world and the needs of people. That's the reason, in fact, this response of belief or unbelief is the reason that John wrote this gospel. He tells us at the end of chapter 20 that he wrote so that more people will essentially move from one to the other, that more would hear of Jesus and learn of who he is and see, get a glimpse of his ministry and his teachings and his, uh, how he identified himself and would move from unbelief to belief. That's the goal of this gospel. That's the goal, I would say, of Jesus in the world, is to move sinners from unbelief to belief. There is a transfer that is to take place in the life of a sinner who repents and trusts in Jesus. The way that Paul words it is that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. It says that in the book of Colossians chapter 1. So, belief and unbelief are the two responses that are possible for a person as they are encountered by the, the, the truth of Jesus, the gospel of Christ, when somebody presents to them his identity and his works and his plan and his saving uh, life and death and resurrection, there's only two possible responses, belief or unbelief. So that lens is going to help us, I think, as we look at these verses today. So just a reminder of where we've come. Chapter 20 began with Mary Magdalene and some of the other women who actually are not named in this, uh, in this gospel, but Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb on Sunday morning to finish their burial preparations, and she finds the stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty. And instead of assuming he's risen, he's alive, she thinks someone has stolen his body. And so she is very concerned and confused, and she runs to tell the other disciples, who are hiding, by the way, she runs to tell the other disciples, his body's gone. Someone's taken the Lord. And so they go to the tomb as well. We hear of Peter and John going to the tomb and, uh, and finding the same scene. They recognize the grave clothes are neatly folded upon the place where his body had lay. And so we recognize something interesting has happened. Right, And at this point, they're like, maybe he's just 
been taken. We don't know what's going on. But it tells us that John himself believed. It says in chapter 20, verse 8, the other disciple, that is John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. All right, so John is saying that when he saw the empty tomb and the folded clothes, he recognized Jesus has risen from the dead. And then Jesus appeared... His very first resurrection appearance is to Mary Magdalene, who remained outside the tomb weeping, and Jesus came up behind her, and she thought it was a gardener, and she said, if you'll tell me where you've put him, I will go and get him, and he simply said her name, Mary, and immediately she recognized him. She called him my teacher, Rabboni, and so then he sent her to be the first evangelist, if you will, the first one to proclaim the risen Christ to the other disciples. Go and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so she went, verse 18, and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Last week, we looked at Jesus' first appearance to the group of these disciples in verses 19 through 23 as they were hiding behind locked doors, afraid of the same Jewish leaders who had put Jesus to death, worried that they're now going to come after all of Jesus' followers and try to snuff them out. So not without reason, they're afraid, and so they're hiding. Then Jesus appears, just shows up in their midst. Something supernatural there that only the risen Jesus could do. He appears in their midst, and he brings them peace. He pronounces to them, peace be with you. And then he commissions them for service, essentially saying, you're going to carry on the work that I've been doing in the world. And the way that he says that in John chapter 20, verse 21 is, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So just as the Father sent me on a mission into the world, I am sending you on a mission into the world to carry on this work. And then he empowers them for that service by giving them the Holy Spirit. Now, I argued last week uh, that this breathing on them and saying receive the Holy Spirit is actually not when the disciples receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't actually happen until Acts chapter 2. Um, so I think what Jesus is doing is, is a visual parable, a sort of a, a symbolic foretelling of or foreshadowing of the power that would come to them when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them. And so he says, I'm giving you this mission, I'm sending you into the world, and I'm reminding you that I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who will empower you for that work. And then he sums up the mission in kind of an interesting way in verse 23 where he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So you can go find the message last week online if you want a deeper explanation of what I think all of that means, but the summary is, I I don't think he's speaking of individuals here, like we each have the individual authority to forgive or not forgive sins, right? Only God forgives sins. So I think he is delegating authority to the community of believers, that is the church, to announce the forgiveness of sins that's available in Christ and to recognize those who truly confess Jesus as Lord. So when the church pronounces the gospel, 
there's forgiveness of sins, and somebody repents, somebody believes, then the church has the ability and the authority to recognize a person as a true confessor of Christ. This person confesses Christ, and he is one of us. So I believe that, that Jesus gives the church this authority uh, in these verses. And so kind of a summary of the mission, but a very church-based uh, shape of it. So anyway, that, that's enough uh, to say about that for today. So the mission of the disciples, and by extension all Christians, is spirit-empowered witness to Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what Christians are sent out into the world to do. Go bear witness to the truth about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit will be with you and empower your words and your work to that end. But you're bound to meet some obstacles. And in fact, the obstacles you meet in this work can be summed up under the singular umbrella of unbelief. Stubborn unbelief on the part of some who will not respond in faith and obedience to your message. And in our text in John 20, as we continue today, we find this unbelief exhibited by one of Jesus' own disciples. I'd like to invite you to read with me or follow along as I read from John 20, verses 19 through 24. I'm sorry, that's not the right text. 24 through 31. Verse 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will Never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We'll pause there in our reading. So it's a little unexpected to find this stubborn unbelief this response to Jesus as uh, of refusing to see, refusing to believe that it's true. It's a little surprising to find that response among one of Jesus' closest disciples. He only had 12, right? One of them has already abandoned and betrayed Jesus and handed him over to his enemies. And so there's 11 left. And one of those guys is here saying, I refuse to believe. This is stubborn unbelief. Unless I see the marks where the nails were in his hands and the place in his side where he was pierced after he had died and place my hand there, so I need to see it, I need to 
touch it, unless I can see it and touch it and know it, I will not believe. He is stubborn in his refusal to believe that Jesus has indeed risen. And we could go easy on Thomas in a sense and try to say like, you know, you've probably heard his nickname as Doubting Thomas. Well, he just had a moment of doubt. I think we need to be careful not to soften his heart, the attitude that he had to Jesus here, because Jesus himself uses the words belief and unbelief in his response to him. Don't be disbelieving. That is, don't be unbelieving, but be believing. This is kind of the, the sense of what he says to him. So what we see in Thomas is stubborn unbelief on the part uh, or on, on to the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. So a few interesting things to consider about this appearance of Jesus. Same situation. The disciples are together again. The doors are still locked. So even though this first group of disciples saw Jesus and he appeared to them and said, peace be with you, and they were glad when they saw him, even still a week later, they're still locked up. They're still hiding. They're still just as timid as they were before. And Jesus once again appears in their midst and stands among them, even though the doors had been locked. So he does the very same thing. But this time, John is keen to tell us, Thomas is there. Thomas is in the midst of the disciples as Jesus comes. And you get the sense that Jesus came to the disciples in this moment for the benefit of Thomas, right? Because he does the very same thing. He appears in their midst. He says again, peace be with you, which is just what he had done with the disciples a week earlier. And then what does he do next? He addresses Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And so you get the sense that the very reason that Jesus came among the disciples this time was just for Thomas. He's got his eye on his followers, and he knows that Thomas is struggling and that Thomas's heart has been hardened to the resurrection of Jesus, and he's refusing to believe. And so Jesus is going to meet Thomas in his doubt. And I think there's a good word there for us of encouragement because Doubt can be a regular part of the life of a Christian because the things that we believe, the things that we anchor our lives on and that we stake our eternity on are things that we can't see, right? You can't see it. You can't touch it. Just like Thomas is saying, unless I can see it, unless I can touch it, unless I can be physically in his presence. Well, we don't have that benefit. And because of that, it's it's natural I think it's still an expression of our fallenness, but it is natural for us at times to struggle with the, the confidence and the, the certainty of our faith, the certainty of our belief. And so there are questions that might come up in your mind, or there are times where somebody might ask you a hard question about the faith, because there are hard questions. Why is there so much suffering in the world and all these kind of things that people might ask? And we're like... I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I have a good answer for that. And even that sense of uncertainty and how to respond to a question can sort of start a tailspin, right? You can start going, well, do I, 
do I really know anything? I mean, am I really certain about any of this? Is this real? Am I believing in some fable, you know? Like, so I think we can find ourselves in our weakness, in our fallenness. We can find ourselves questioning the very bedrock foundational truths of the gospel. And I think, I don't want to say that's okay. Like God's like, I love your doubt. I don't think that it's, I think there's still an an element of sin in our doubting. But it's understandable. And in our doubt, I think we need each other. I think we need the church as the community of faith to hold us up and to strengthen us. We need the church to be like the other disciples were to Thomas in verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, right? They're not responsible for Thomas's response. They can't force Thomas to believe, but they're bearing witness to their brother, right? Thomas says, I'm not going to believe. And they are telling him, we've seen this. We've seen the Lord. We know that it's real. We know that it's true. And the church can play that role for each individual member as we find moments of struggle or doubt or uncertainty or weakness, the rest of the church is there to come alongside and say, we've seen the Lord. We know this is real. We know this is true. We've seen him in you. Don't doubt. Don't be disbelieving, but believe. And so the the church can play a role in our lives as we struggle with doubts. But I think the more important thing to see in this is that Jesus himself is sensitive to your weakness. Jesus himself knows your struggles. He knows your questions, those moments of uncertainty and fear and doubt and unbelief. And he cares and he comes to you. It's so beautiful the way that Jesus comes to Thomas. He could have written him off. We could, the, the, chapter 20 of John's Gospel could read, Thomas, one of the twelve, was, with, was not with them. And the other disciples said, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see it, I won't believe. And then it could just move right on. And Jesus appears to the others, and Thomas just sort of fades from view. And I guess Thomas just stopped believing, right? And just kind of moved away and was no longer one of, the, one of his followers. But it's merciful of Jesus to see Thomas's need and to step in, engage him at that level, at the level of his weakness. He didn't just call to him as some mysterious voice, Thomas, you should believe, even though you haven't seen. He meets Thomas at his weakness. Because what's Thomas's bottom line? Gotta have it. I need to see him. I need to touch him. Gotta be able to feel it. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't preach at him. Right? He doesn't go, well, you shouldn't have to see, right? You, I'm just going to see if you can come around to this on your own. He shows up and he says, hey, put your hand there. Put your hand on my side. Feel, see, believe. So Jesus meets Thomas in his weakness and specifically addresses his need. But then don't Don't make any mistake here, no bones about it. He challenges Thomas, doesn't he? He calls to him. I would say he calls him to repent. He says, don't be disbelieving, but believing. Be believing. And that is the summons of the gospel. 
That is the call of God to every sinner. Believe. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. That's the call. That's the, that's what the church does. We proclaim there's forgiveness of sins if you'll repent and believe in Jesus. And so Jesus essentially preaches the gospel to Thomas by showing himself and saying, believe. We would do well to respond in the same way to Jesus' merciful patience with our doubt and weakness. And when the church comes alongside us and says, we've seen the Lord, we know he's real, we know this is true, and we think you believe it too, we would do well to respond in faith and obedience. So, Jesus overcomes, if you will, the unbelief of Thomas by meeting him in his weakness. And by the way, Jesus is the only one who can do that. Not one of us has the power to overcome the unbelief of anyone else. No matter how many times we talk to someone or share the gospel with them or urge them or answer their questions or read books with them or whatever that might help them, no matter how much we do, we cannot overcome the unbelief of anybody. Which is why Jesus told his disciples in John 16 that the Holy Spirit would come and he convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It's the work of God. Now, no doubt, it's the work of God through us, right? The church, Christians speak the gospel and the Holy Spirit works through their witness, through their words to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. But we don't have the ability to overcome anyone's unbelief. My neighbors in Houston, we, we could talk until we were blue in the face. We could argue, we could question, we could challenge, we could invite. And one neighbor repents and responds, and the other doesn't. And is that because Lindsay and I failed in our witness to them? I don't think so. That doesn't mean I said everything perfectly or couldn't have you know, sharpened the way that I spoke or addressed their questions or whatever. But I don't think their refusal to believe is on my shoulders, like I was supposed to overcome their unbelief and I goofed. The Holy Spirit's the only one who can do that. Jesus is the only one who can show up in a person's heart and say, touch, see, believe. That's the work of Jesus. That's mysterious. That's, that's hard. That's, that's uncomfortable to us in some ways, I think. But the bottom line is, this is God's jurisdiction. It's, the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So, Jesus appears to Thomas, put your hands here, touch my wounds, and believe. And of course, we see Thomas's response in verse 28. Immediately, he believes. And it doesn't even tell us that he touched the wounds. It would, it would seem that upon sight, And just hearing Jesus address him, that was enough. It doesn't say, and so Thomas then meticulously placed his fingers into each one of Jesus' wounds and then decided that he believed. Jesus says, here I am, believe. 
And Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. Now notice, Thomas calls Jesus God. And Jesus doesn't go, no, 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 you're overstating things a bit, right? Because we've seen throughout John's gospel, Jesus' message about himself is, I am God's son. I am from God the Father. I am God, right? I and the Father are one. We've had big, bold statements like back in John chapter 8 where he said, before Abraham was, I am using the covenant name of God, Yahweh, I am. So Jesus has been proclaiming of himself throughout the gospel that he is God in the flesh. And so when Thomas recognizes him and professes of him, my Lord and my God, Jesus does not correct him. So we see once again, this the testimony is consistent. Jesus is God himself in human flesh. And so look at Jesus' answer. Have you believed because you have seen me? I think the answer is yes. I mean, that that rhetorical question implies a positive answer. Yes, Thomas has seen Jesus and on that basis has moved from unbelief to belief. But listen to what he says next. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Happy. Recipients of good, right? To be blessed. Joyful. It's good to not see and yet believe. We don't wait for proof. They don't take, they just decide to take God at His word. And Jesus says that is better. It's better to take God at His word and to believe without having seen. He prayed this way back in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer right before he was arrested. He prayed in John chapter 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, that is for his immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you are in me and I in you, all right? So those who would believe in me through their word, that's us. That's anyone down through the ages who would believe in Jesus Christ without having seen him because they've received the testimony of those who knew him, of those who did see him. And so as we read things like the Gospel of John, and we read an eyewitness account of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, and we believe Jesus is saying, that is better. I am more pleased by that response, the response of those who believe in me without having seen me, without being able to touch my wounds and to see me in the person like Thomas had the ability to do, and all these disciples indeed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This also reminds me of the words of Peter in his letter, uh, his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1. He says this, Though you have not seen him, that is Jesus, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What's the result of that belief without having seen? Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How's your soul going to be saved? By believing in Jesus Christ. And specifically, by believing in him without having seen him without having the benefit of sight, taste, smell, touch, and whatever the other senses are. I think I missed a couple. Anyway, I can't see him. I can't touch him. I don't know that he's there because of empirical evidence, but my heart knows, my heart sees, and I believe. And Jesus says, that's better. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, faith, don't get me wrong, faith is reasonable. Faith is not unfounded. It's like somebody just made up some weird stuff and goes, you're a better person if you believe this. And we're like, okay, I believe it, la, 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 don't tell me anything different. Like, it's not goofy to believe. It's not foolishness to believe. There's reasons behind our belief. The Christianity is a reasonable faith. It's a historical faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a public miracle. And if it could be disproved, Christianity is done. If anybody could at any point prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we ought to pack up now. I'm selling off these signs and we're done. Christianity has nothing to offer. Imprint Community Church has nothing to say. But... No one can disprove the resurrection. There were hundreds of witnesses to the risen Christ. He he appeared to people for 40 days after his resurrection. His followers were utterly transformed and changed and their lives different. And they recorded for us these incredible stories of his teachings and his ministry and his healings and and, and his, his, his sermons and his life and his death and his resurrection. And so we have the benefit of these eyewitness accounts and these ones who knew him very early on. So it's not a, an unreasonable faith, right? It's, it's not an unfounded faith. It's not blind faith. But it's more than a merely intellectual exercise, right? At the end of the day, those who are forgiven of their sins and adopted as God's children are the ones who draw near to him in faith. Not the ones who have all their arguments answered or all of their questions answered to their satisfaction. Not the ones who get their minds all the way around all of the mysteries. I totally understand how God works and why there is so much suffering in the world and all of these things. That's not the way that somebody is saved. Somebody is saved by believing in Jesus Christ without having seen. That's the only option we've got. Unless Jesus decides to show up in the room in the flesh, which he could do, but I doubt he will. Unless he decides to show up, just like he did among the disciples here in John 20, the best we've got is the eyewitness testimony of those who have recorded his ministry and his teachings in the Bible and the witness of the millions of Christians down through the centuries who have attested to the power 
of God at work in their lives through their faith in the Lord Jesus. People around this room have stories just like it. We have stories about how we've seen the Lord at work. No, I haven't seen him physically. I haven't seen his body. I don't know exactly what he looks like. He probably doesn't look like that blonde-haired, blue-eyed, like, you know, very Anglo-looking Jesus. That's probably not what he looks like. But I don't know what he looks like because I've never seen him in the flesh. But I've seen the Lord. I've seen him in the softening of hard hearts. I've seen him in the growth in, in kindness and gentleness of those who used to be bitter and angry and difficult. I've seen him in children growing toward obedience and respect when their instinct was to be selfish and disobedient. I've seen him. We all have stories like that of how we've seen the Lord at work. And so the testimony of Mary and the testimony of these disciples becomes our testimony. I have seen the Lord. So the mission is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. You're going to encounter obstacles. The main obstacle is stubborn unbelief. And you might find it in surprising places, like Jesus found it among one of his own close disciples. You might find unbelief where you don't expect it, but you're going to find it. You're going to tell people about Jesus, and they're going to stiff arm you. I don't want that. I don't believe that. That's a fairy story. I don't, I don't think that's true. They won't believe. You're going to find it. So in the midst of that, what's the goal? How do you respond? How do you reply to this stubborn unbelief when you encounter it? Here's the goal. Clearly identify Jesus Christ. And that's it. It's that simple. That's what John does in the last couple of verses of chapter 20. Look at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is writing to persuade, right? He is hoping that you'll read this gospel and move from unbelief to belief, that you will transfer from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his Son. Because you see Jesus for who he is. And that's what it comes down to here. I have written these things not so that you'll see signs and be impressed. Not so that you'll see signs and seek power to do things like it. But so that you'll see who Jesus is. Look at verse 31. These are written so that you may believe. What? That Jesus is the Christ. That is, he is the anointed one of God, sent by the Father to rescue his people. And he is the Son of God. God himself in human flesh. And that by believing that, you may have life in his name. By believing what? Believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So it all comes down to who is Jesus. So our response when we're met with those who disbelieve our message or who might even be uh, hostile or uh, who object to your teaching or speaking about Jesus, 
the response is simply this. Just make Jesus plain. That's it. And I'm not responsible, you are not responsible for how someone responds to the gospel message. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. We can't do that. But we can faithfully and clearly present Jesus as the Son of God and as the anointed one who came to rescue sinners. It's the centerpiece of our work and witness in the world. Jesus is the Christ. Believe upon him and have eternal life. That's the message of Christianity. The message of the gospel is that we are all broken, fallen sinners, separated from God, earning his wrath against our sin, destined for destruction eternally. It's a bad place to be in, to be under the wrath of God. And that's where we all are, except that God made a way. God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, the Christ, into the world to bear our sins, to take our sins to a cross and be and receive the penalty that should have been ours. And in the death of Jesus, God poured all of His wrath against our sin upon Himself. And then in the rising of Jesus from the dead, he defeated death and he set hell aside and he made it possible for anyone to receive the gift of eternal life. How do you do it? Belief. It's just that simple. It comes down to belief or unbelief. How does your heart respond to that invitation. John 1, 11 and 12 says that Jesus, the Word of God, came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to those who did receive Him, even those who believed on His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Are you a child of God? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ Have you repented of your sins and looked to his life and death and resurrection to cover you and to give you eternal life? If so, you're his child. If you haven't done that, you can do it today. You can do it now. In your heart, turn to God in faith. Confess that Jesus is Lord and that he took your sins and that he rose from the dead. Confess your own sin. And believe upon the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says you will be saved. So if you haven't done that and you you have questions about that or you'd like to do that, I would love to visit with you after the service. Come find me. Let's have a conversation about that. And let's invite the Lord to save you in that way.